Good morning. I just want to take this time this morning just to say thank you to the church uh, for me and my family us transitioning uh, to here. Uh, we're so grateful for everything that y'all have done for us on our house and for us for our house. Uh, and so thank you guys. We're very, very grateful for y'all and all the work that y'all have done. Um, if you would, open your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 3. That's where we will be this morning. Before we get started in James chapter 3, I want to give us a little bit of context this morning. Uh, context is king. That's what I was taught in seminary. Uh, that's what I hold to now. I believe that is the truth in any context of any co conversation you're in or anything you watch on YouTube, for example. Context is king, right? So James here is instructing dispersed house churches in the dispersion. These, this dispersion has happened from the persecution of believers and I just want to say this here before we get further into this, that I want to recognize how great it is that we don't have to hide from anyone when we meet together. There's no one chasing after us this morning to stop us from meeting. There's no one hating us so much that we have to flee the community we live in yet. And perhaps believers in other parts of the world would be able to relate to this kind of uh, dispersion that we see here. But for us, let's not take for granted this time of least persecution that we face, that we get to experience here. And because we're able to meet together this morning, let's not grow comfortable in just casually meeting on Sundays. But instead, we should be faithful to share the gospel with the lost world around us. There's a temptation that whenever we aren't persecuted to grow comfortable and to just come on Sundays and Wednesdays and forget that there is a dying world out there. Let's not forget. And so James has just finished instructing this, these dispersed house churches about how faith without works is dead. And as we know, faith and works go hand in hand with one another. You cannot have faith in a living God and not see change happen in how you live your life. Our works are an outpouring of our faith. And so here in chapter 3, we're going to see James first address the teachers and the importance of their job in verses 1 through 5. And then we're going to see James address the wickedness and evil that the tongue can produce it will be described as a small fire that can set an entire forest on fire in verses 6 through 12. And so the structure here is the tongue guides and it gives direction. In verses 1 through 4, the tongue destroys in verses 5 through 7. And the tongue corrupts in verses 8 through 12. And we're going to see all three of these themes here this morning as we get here into James. So follow along with me here in James chapter 3 verse 1. James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. 
So it was my ninth grade algebra teacher that was one of my favorite teachers that I ever had in my life. Not only did it help that she was a believer, but the care and encouragement that she gave to each of us as students uh, as, as if we were her own children stood out the most from the rest of my teachers. As a result of her teaching abilities, I made a 98 in that class. If you gave me an algebra exam, though, today, I, I don't know that I would pass it, so please don't do that. Uh, other than that, she was an exceptional teacher of algebra and made the equations that we were solving easily comprehensible. As we know, teachers play a big role in each of our lives, whether they are your parents homeschooling you or not. But this verse here, verse 1 in chapter 3, is a verse that terrifies me the most about teaching in ministry, which I believe it should. The God of the universe is listening to every word I say and how I lead more strictly than others. Now, don't get me wrong here. Every believer is responsible for teaching others what God has revealed through his word because we've been commissioned by Jesus to do so. To make disciples is a call to teach in some aspect of your life. Parents, teach your kids. Students, help teach their peers. In the church, we help teach the littles the truths of God's word in small bites. Teaching is a big part of life. Without it, we would probably never learn and probably never make it to where we are today. So James, in verse 1, is evidently speaking here of people becoming teachers much like the rabbis in his day. So the rabbis, they were highly esteemed. They were honored and they were held in great um, authority. And so they were kind of like professional teachers teaching about God's word. And so we see in Luke 12, 48, Jesus says, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him, to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. So in Hebrews, they're saying, listen to them because it's going to actually help you out. Because they have to give an account. So to be a teacher of the word of God is something that is not to be taken lightly. We know this to be the truth based on the qualifications for overseers in 1 Timothy and Titus 1. However, however we see people become teachers for some of the wrong reasons like status, or power, or money, or control, whatever it is that's appealing to them to win them over to become a teacher, sometimes they chase after those things. Sometimes we see people teach to build their own little kingdom to be treated like a king. That way, when they walk through those doors, they are catered to hand and foot, like they are the king of their little kingdom. But if you want to teach the word of God to others, it should be because you love the word so much that you want others to see what you see in it and for God to be glorified through that teaching. 
After all, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so the reason James is saying what he's saying in verse 1 is to hopefully prevent those that are not qualified to teach or those that want to teach for the wrong reasons, for power, money, greed, whatever it is, to think again before they become a teacher. Because this is a heavy thing to take on. The accountability that comes with it. So now let's look at verse 2. James says, For we all stumble in many ways, And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So in regard to being a teacher, we all stumble in the things we say. And since our words matter, being a teacher would be much more difficult. We see this in our news and our politics all the time. People take others' words out of context to mean something other than its original intent. People do that with the Bible. They'll take verses out of context to mean that they can, God's going to protect them because he said it to these people or, or God's going to give them all of these other blessings because he said it to these people. It's not always the same way. So we see this. And so if you're in the public eye or, or you are teaching and you are known by other people, It's easy for others to see all of your faults. For them to take your words out of context to mean something that you never intended to happen. But James says, if you are able to not stumble with what you say, then you can be perfect. So James knows that there is no one perfect Because he just admitted that we all stumble in many ways. So why is he saying this? Well, James is probably pointing to Jesus' perfection. Jesus did not stumble in what he said. He is perfect. James, however, is not saying that we can be perfect or attain perfection. As we continue reading, we'll find out more about what he's talking about here. But James also mentions in verse 2, being able to bridle his whole body, right? He is a perfect man, able also to bridle his own body. So when you think of a bridle, a bridle goes on a horse's head. It controls the direction of where the horse is going. And so he's giving us a picture saying that, that what we say and the words we say come from our whole body. He's using the metaphor of a bridle, right, to control the horse. And so if you can control your words, then you should be able to control your whole body. He's basically saying that it's harder to tame your tongue than it is your sexual lusts. It's harder to tame your tongue than it is to tame your alcohol addiction. If you think you have a hard time overcoming greed, try and tame your tongue. He's saying, no one can tame their tongue. This is something that no man has been able to do. If you can tame the tongue, then you will be perfect. 
but we know we can't. One commentator puts it this way, a person's words reflect his character and thus are a key to his whole being. Now, this is an interesting way to view the words that we use. You know, typically in the past, I've always thought of my words as, well, I just think them in my brain and then they just come out, right? Well, that's not what James is saying. It's, it's just coming from who I am. It's part of my whole body and my identity some. Just like you guys. What you're saying, it's part of who you are. Every little nuance and word that you use is part of how God has created you. But it's also coming out of your whole being. When we hear the voice of someone that we love... There are often feelings associated with that. I remember when my grandmother uh, had passed, uh, I was making the video um, for her funeral, and my mom was standing nearby, and there was a video where my grandmother was speaking, and just it was the sound of her voice where my mother could not stay in the room any longer because she missed it. And my grandmother had not, been, had not passed for a very long time, but she had already missed the sound of her mother's voice. And so our words, they have meaning, but there's feeling associated with those meanings and memories associated with those words and those nuances of how we speak that we remember about these people. And so this is the impact that our words have on others' lives. The memories that come to mind whenever they hear your voice or the words that you used to use or use currently. This makes sense when Jesus says in Matthew 15, 18, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. And so I want you to consider this morning, church. The next time you speak to your kids and you're angry at them, or the next time you speak to your husband or your wife, whatever hurtful thing it was that you said to them to make that sting last just a little bit longer, or how you speak about others when they aren't around. Each and every word that we say matters because our words have meaning. I want you to think about in Genesis, when God created the world, he spoke things into existence. He used his words to make things come into being. There's something unique that God has given us with our words today that we can use, whether to build up or to, build, or to bring down others. And so we need to choose our words carefully. God has given us this. How we say something and what we say makes a difference in every conversation that we have with people. The words we are using to describe to them are coming from our whole being. Our language, it runs deep within us. Our words can be so powerful that they can convince people to do things that they shouldn't. We've seen this whenever there's maybe an abusive relationship. Sometimes the, the victim starts to love their abuser. They've been convinced. Maybe it's by their words. The abuser's words that they still love them and that's what love looks like. And so they can use those words to convince people to do things that they know they shouldn't. 
I want to say this too, parents. This is why we should teach our kids to think critically. When they cannot think for themselves, who are they going to believe? If they aren't taught to discern words that are spoken to them, then they will be more likely to fall into the trap of the world's words, thinking that they are okay with the current state that they are in, the state of brokenness and lostness, chasing after the things that the world offers. The Bible teaches differently about the state of fallenness that we are in. So we need to teach them that. I can attest to how language changes, changes how we think. I was speaking earlier about how deep our language runs within us. It is so embedded in us deeply. Some of you may know what I mean whenever I start to describe this, but I only spent two months in India when I began to learn some of the language to be able to get around town. And by the end of those two months, I remember making the realization that I began to think more and more like a South Asian. Now, originally, South Asians drive on the left side of the road, so that's already weird enough. But something that was weird was I began to still ride on the right side of the road against the flow of traffic because that's what the locals did. And again, it didn't make any sense, but for some reason at the end of two months, it was making sense to me. And I look back on that and I'm like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me now. So. There's something about the language, though, that I was learning and that it was beginning to embed in me and I was beginning to see why they do some of the things that they do. And, I was, and, and so in learning that, it, I, I made a realization that I think the language is changing how I think in some aspects. So I say all of that to say that what we say and do runs deep within us. Our words reflect our character. So now verses 3 through 4. James says, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by, by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. And so James is continuing on with these illustrations of small items that steer large things. He's relating this with our tongues. You've got a bit that can control a large animal, and then you have a rudder that can control a large boat, whichever direction it goes. So the little bits that go in horses' mouths, they can control this body. The ships, they can overcome great obstacles in the sea. And so James is really digging into the idea of the tongue and our words guiding the direction of our whole bodies. In a sense, our tongues can control the destiny of where we are headed. Sometimes what we say can make or break what happens in a relationship next. Verses 5 and 6. James says, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by 
hill. So here at the beginning of chapter verse 5, excuse me, the tongue boasts of great things. Perhaps the Psalms can give us a better picture of this boasting James is talking about. In Psalm 12, verses 3 through 4, it says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, With our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? The tongue can boast just like this scripture illustrates. And so usually boasting in the New Testament refers to a sinful activity, kind of like someone that doesn't know what is appropriate to say to God or how to treat him as their Lord and King. There may be an arrogance to them when it comes to what they say, and they may be arrogant before God and boasting about things which they do not know about, almost putting themselves in the position of being a God. And so much like the two illustrations in verses 3 through 4, the tongue is small but does big things. This is pointing back to how powerful our words are. You may have heard the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, I am here to tell you that that saying is wrong. Words can hurt. They can hurt really bad. I don't know if you've ever gotten the chance to listen to people that may have left the church because of church hurt. But it's usually because of the words that were said or the lack thereof. Maybe they weren't loved or encouraged by their words. Like like Christ encourages us to do. Or maybe they experienced too much crude joking as is mentioned not to have in Ephesians 5.4, when it says, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. I've personally seen it in churches, crude joking. If we decide to talk in this way with one another, then we can have the potential to turn away a dying world from these doors. They'll, they'll look away because there's nothing different about what they see in here versus out there. We are a place that should offer hope, not filthy words. So on the second half of verse 5, we see that a small fire can set an entire forest on fire. And so if you've ever seen an ad with Smokey the Bear, then you know how small a fire it takes to light up an entire forest. It's usually, they'll show like the match ads, just a match. And so we're getting this picture here of the tongue being like a fire, spreading things, whether it's gossip or anything, the words we say, spreading like wildfire and starting something that should not be started. And then in verse 6, we see James talking about how the tongue destroys. He says, it's a world of unrighteousness. We can see this in the Old Testament when it compares the speech of a fool to a scorching fire in Proverbs 16.27. In reference to the tongue being a fire, it's small, but it can make a huge impact on the world around us, as I've already said. But many people may use the expression, it's spreading like wildfire. Fire destroys and can spread rapidly. 
This idea of a world of unrighteousness is giving all the evil characteristics of a fallen world. It's covetousness, it's idolatry, it's blasphemy, it's lusts, it's greed. Find expressions through the tongue. Not only this, but the tongue is also a member of our body, just like an arm, an ear, fingers, toes, and it is staining our whole bodies. So James is giving this image that the tongue is making the rest of our bodies, like he mentioned in the first half of this, coming out of our whole bodies. He's saying this is staining every other part of your body because it is so wicked. There's no other member of our bodies that wrecks so much havoc to living a godly life than the tongue. And so the staining that happens to our body is contrary to what James tells us is true religion back in chapter 2, 27, when he tells us there to keep oneself unstained from the world. Then he goes on to say in verse 6, that the tongue sets on fire the entire course of life. So what does he mean here, this entire course of life? Well, what it seems to me is that the tongue affects the ups and downs of life. It affects all of human existence from beginning to end and all of its circumstances. As I mentioned, Genesis, in the beginning, God created. He spoke things into existence. This is a big thing. We should gain some wisdom from Proverbs 17, 28, when he says, Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. My father used to tell me, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all when it would come to me and my brothers speaking with one another. Sometimes I took that advice and sometimes I did not. But for our tongues to be set on fire by hell, as James is talking about here, this is to represent that it is of the devil because of its evil. And it was by the tongue, also, that Adam and Eve were deceived into disobeying what God had commanded. Let's look at verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. James here is illustrating that everything that can be tamed has been tamed by us. People have taught lions, tigers, and monkeys to jump through hoops. They've taught parrots and canaries to speak and sing. We've done all of these things, but we still can't tame our own tongues. Now, verse 8, we see corruption. In verse 8 he says, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Even if you wanted to tame the tongue, you can't. The tongue is untamable by humans. And so this makes sense if we realize that the tongue is set on fire by hell, as James mentions. Evil speech comes from Satan himself. And that is where it gets its fuel. The tongue is a restless evil. It's never trying to stop being evil. Just like Satan isn't trying to stop from deceiving you to believe in the lies that the world wants us to believe in. 
It is only with the Holy Spirit's help that we can overcome this thing. Another commentator puts it this way. The poison produced by the tongue destroys the neighbor and brings the one who sins to ruin also. And so we need to recognize how powerful the imagery is that James is giving us here. A bite from a poisonous animal can cause excruciating pain and often death. If our words are a reflection of our character, we need to ask ourselves, are we giving life with the words we use or are we poisoning those that we talk to, leading them to hell as well? Are our words helping them along to hell? Verses 9 through 10. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people whom are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So we see James pointing out the hypocrisy of our actions. Oftentimes, back in uh, the day when Jesus was alive, and also probably today, um, Jewish people uh, practice in both their speaking and in writing to add, blessed be he, after every time they heard or read the name of God. So they were blessing God, if they were a good Jew, very often, right? So they would hear the name God, blessed be he. They would read it, blessed be he. But we need to understand that cursing and cussing are two totally different things. This isn't you getting angry at someone and cussing them out, but what this is to emphasize here, to curse someone, is to desire that they be cut off from God to experience eternal punishment. But Jesus does the opposite in Luke 6, 28, when he teaches his disciples to bless those who curse you. And James throws in here, who are made in the likeness of God, in verse 9. He wants us to realize that if we curse someone made in his likeness, as we are also, then we too are making a fool out of ourselves. And in a way, we're cursing our own kind. It's shameful what we're doing. So James then says, rightly, that these things ought not to be so. He is saying that this is unnatural, and it even goes against natural processes as we will get to here in verses 11 through 12. But how often do we do this, church? We come to church, we praise God for his goodness and faithfulness to us, but then we go through our week and we have interactions with people that are far from godliness. Maybe with family, with friends, coworkers, our kids, maybe our neighbors. We treat them in an ungodly way with our tongues. Another commentator says this, to the person who speaks praise to God in the worship service and then abuses people verbally at home or at work, James commands, 
Purify your speech through the week. With the person who says, oh, I know I talk too much, and laughs it off, James is not amused. He insists, be quick to listen, slow to speak, by the person who boasts. I always speak my mind, no matter who gets hurt. James is not impressed. He commands, discipline your speaking. Of the person who says, I know I gossip too much, but I just can't help it. James still requires, control your tongue. Of the person who is in the habit of speaking with insults, ridicule, or sarcasm, James demands, change your speech habits. He expects discipline to be happening in the life of a Christian. Any Christian can ask for the grace needed, for God gives good gifts and gives them generously. There is then no justification for corrupt habits of speech in our churches today. Verses 11 and 12. James ends here. He says, Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And so again, both of these illustrations, James is again trying to solidify his point about the unnaturalness that it is to bless God and curse others. It's so unnatural that our mouths should not be able to do the things like what he is describing. It's unnatural for there to be salt in fresh water. It's unnatural for any plant to bear any other fruit than what it bears. It's unnatural for that to happen. Plants only produce the kind of fruit that they should bear. And so no matter how much you want to hide your sin, your speech will reveal what is in your heart. Jesus says it best in Matthew 12, 36-37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified And by your words, you will be condemned. From all of what James has talked about, he leaves us with the idea that there is no hope because of the wicked evil that our tongue produces. However, only a renewed heart can produce pure speech in our lives. The only way to have a renewed heart is to trust in what Jesus has done on the cross to save us from our sins, and to be made into a new creation. So James has brought us here to say, look at how wicked your tongues are. We're hopeless. We've got no hope. The next section of what James refers to, which we will not get to this morning, but is wisdom from above, looking to where this comes from, looking to where Christ is, our hope, our Savior, and our salvation. This is why Jesus died, so that we can be made clean through him to have a relationship with God. Y'all pray with me this morning. Father, we come to you this morning grateful and thankful, Father. Thankful that you have come to save us. Thankful, Father, that you save us from 
our own tongues and the words we speak, Father. We're thankful, Father, that you have the ability to help us with the words we use. That you have the ability to help our tongues be made new and to have a renewed heart. Father, we thank you that you have made us in your likeness. Father, you've set us apart from every other creature. You've given us words to express to you in thanksgiving and praise and confession. Father, words to express how we feel. Father, we just pray that we would use those words wisely. Thank you for your son and for the cross and for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.